Welcome to The Things I Thought About When My Body Was Trying to Kill Me. I'm Ray Suarez. I'm a journalist and author, and importantly for this story, a cancer survivor. Well, a cancer survivor so far. After a lifetime of staying out of hospitals as a patient, my streak ends. I've got a tag around my wrist. It's finally my turn. I'm getting alterations. And everybody knows what they have to do. The patient is in trouble, and at least for now, we have to tiptoe around that. Chapter 4, Getting Alterations Cancer surgery turns out to be a lot easier than it sounds from that terrible phrase. I'm Ray Suarez. This is The Things I Thought About When My Body Was Trying to Kill Me. My wife and I were in one of the world's great cancer hospitals, Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. We entered the operating area, told the staff we were there, and the next acts in the unfolding drama picked up pace. Instead of the brisk, almost impersonal tone I was used to from my emergency room visits or my visits to other patients in treatment, I was struck by the kindness, the tenderness even, of the care, the swift efficiency tempered by considerate concern. We were, as a group, some very sick people, so we got a different tone. As a reporter, I had covered medicine for decades, how to pay for it, research and experimentation, what worked and what didn't, the struggle to stop making mistakes like amputating the wrong foot or removing the healthy kidney instead of the diseased one. Everybody, nurses, surgeons, anesthetists, asked me my name, and a few minutes later, asked again. They asked my birth date, over and over again. The surgeon came by, cheery and all business, in command. He introduced me to the other members of the team, checked my latest vital signs, and whoosh, it all begins. There's a line in your arm. There's a cannula, a thin plastic tube for oxygen in your nose. A man you've just met only a few minutes before, your anesthesiologist, is talking you through what's going to happen for the next few hours. Things were now moving really fast. After a squeeze of reassurance, I said goodbye to my wife, and flat on my back, watched the ceilings roll by as I was wheeled from prep to surgery and detected that strange set of sensations on the only uncovered part of me, my face. The air temperature changes, the light, from room to room, into the corridor, through open doors, into an elevator, and then finally into the cold, dry air and bright lights of the operating room. I was numb immobile. This, I had been telling myself, in order to steady myself, was what I had to do to stay alive. So I would do it. I opened my eyes. The nurse was standing over me and looked down to introduce herself. The surgeon was there, now gowned and masked. The surgeon's careful and competent assistant was there. I was told I would start to feel a spreading warmth as anesthesia was introduced through the line in my arm, and I did. Then, strangely, my wife was there. I was already done. In a new room, different air on my face. As the cobwebs cleared, or kind of cleared, I could see there were now tubes running from my abdomen, suctioning the wound. I shifted slightly in the bed and felt the dead weight 
the tug of a catheter, now in for hours since the first minutes after the anesthesia took hold. The surgeon informed me that when he got to the tumors, they appeared to have breached the walls of my colon, invaded, replaced the normal tissues at the site. So he had to take dozens of lymph nodes out with the tumors. The pathologist would have to look at the tumors, look at the now-removed section of my colon, and look at all those lymph nodes. If there were even a few cancer cells in any of them, surgery wouldn't be enough. I would have to have chemotherapy. If the lymph nodes were clean, all the detectable cancer confined to the tumors themselves, I might be home free. In a long series of hurry-up-and-waits, this was going to be yet another one. We wouldn't know that for a while. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. You do take an inventory of yourself. What does everything feel like? Along with the weight of the equipment emerging from my guts and the tug of the catheter, I was aware of a sloshing as I lay flat on my back and shifted my weight. My belly was stretched, distended, full of fluid that perceptibly shifted from one side to the other as I rocked from side to side. It didn't hurt. It just felt like nothing I had ever felt before, like having a bunch of water balloons inside you. In the meanwhile, I was told the best thing to do was to get up and move. Really? Already? Yes. Special yellow hospital booties signaled that I was a risk for falling down. There was an IV pole in one hand, my wife's arm in the other. It was time to take a brief walking tour of my floor. Getting out of bed for that first toddle was not the unconscious process getting out of bed might normally be. You've got a line in your arm connected to a bag on a pole. You've got the wires of a heart monitor extending out from the gown. A pulse oximeter checking pulse and oxygen saturation of your blood taped to your finger. And that swaying water sack of a belly. The tubes coming from that belly. And that damned catheter dangling between your legs. Once all these things are draped over the side of the bed and you swing your legs over, the lines are transferred to portable and mobile versions of all the machines, 
and upon request your wife checks that your behind isn't sticking out of the back of your gown, accompanied by your wife and children, it's time to hit the road. Nurses looked up approvingly. I hadn't gotten this much positive reinforcement for taking a few wobbly steps in 60 years. I was alive. I was going to cruise up and down those long hallways and make myself better. I did it with forced cheer, in part to show the people who worried about me that I was alive. No, don't worry about me. I'm not going to die, not today at least. Smile on my face, and with as much swagger as I could manage, with a catheter swinging between my legs, a suction tube in my stomach, and an IV pole rolling beside me, the safest thing for me to do was not think too much about myself in order to clear enough psychic space in my head to reassure those other people. Back in control? Well, no, but getting closer anyway. It was late Saturday afternoon. I hadn't had anything to eat since the morning before, about 30 hours. I wondered, could I eat? Was I now sewn up tight, able to put something in my mouth that, just a short time later, would be heading into my only recently reassembled lower digestive tract? My surgeon passed by, felt around my stomach, explained the sloshing. Yeah, a lot of water was flushed through there while they're operating. It will be absorbed back into your tissues, don't worry. Everything looked good, he said. A little later, his thorough, brisk, and young assistant also gave me a once-over and said I would be able to start on liquids right away and soft food just a little later. It's never just one thing. For me, it was a thousand little things coursing through my head, trying to exude confidence, trying to impress others with my can-do spirit so they wouldn't worry about me, trying not to think about whether there were, quietly, hidden away somewhere in me, the cells that would become the next tumors, in new, unknown places, trying not to think about the quiet sucking sound in my abdomen, trying not to think about how strange I felt, and trying not to say what I really thought about all the people who talked about fighting cancer, beating cancer, using the language of war and struggle to give an illusion of agency and control about something that's out of your control. Oh, sure, I could give in and talk about beating this thing, buy into that notion that I had some role to play, that my intention to fight made a lick of difference to cancer. But I just couldn't believe it. And it seemed to me, even before, to be a gross misstatement of what was really going on here, and an even more gross insult to the people who died. Pick up your local paper and read the obituaries. Invariably, there's a mention of someone who, quote, lost their battle, or someone who fought for years and died. Did they not fight hard enough? Did cancer just want to kill them more than they wanted to live? No. The grim meatiness of it all, the carnal simplicity of multiplying cells, cells with no brain, no ambition, no plan, no intention. They were not something you could beat or vanquish or fight a war with and win. You would live or die. You might live for now and die eventually. I wasn't in a war. Cancer might kill me. When they opened me up that morning, they might have 
bought me three years, or five, or twenty-five. My surgeon might have removed those things that were definitely going to kill me if he didn't take them out and restore me to the life expectancy of any other American guy my age. Or he may have just been cancer's speed bump on the road to my funeral. Not knowing was going to have to be okay. My daughter walked over to my hospital room from the church where she worked on the Upper East Side. She's an ordained person, a priest in the Episcopal Church, someone I had taken to church every Sunday since she was an infant in a carrier. She brought her portable communion set. We said the prayers. We broke the bread. She gave me communion while I was flat on my back. It was quiet, intimate, gentle. In that one moment, she was both an authority figure, a priest in the church where I had been a faithful member my whole life, and my kid, all at the same time. And it was a great comfort to have her there for both reasons. For a minute, I forgot myself and spoke to the priest instead of my kid. There was something I had to say, so I just said it. If I'm dying, I'm okay with that. I've had a wonderful life. I'm ready to accept whatever's going to happen, and I won't do anything just to stay alive a little longer. Her eyes widened. She wasn't expecting that. The priest quickly composed herself. After all, it was part of her job to sit at the hospital beds of very sick people. We said a prayer together. We were done. My best friend, a Jew and an agnostic, sat on the other side of the bed, taking this all in, watching all of it transpire. He later told me, I don't know much about communion, but there was a minute there where I thought I was going to burst into tears. I was going to be around a little while longer after all, but not to fight another day. Thanks for listening to The Things I Thought About When My Body Was Trying to Kill Me. The hard stuff has started in earnest. You're not waiting for the starter's pistol, but you're not anywhere near the finish line either. There's a lot that has yet to happen, physically and emotionally. These aren't things I would have chosen to happen to me, but they are the things that happened as they do to hundreds of thousands of Americans every year. Maybe even you, or someone you care about. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and pass it on to others facing the same challenges. Somebody it might help, not only to find out how it goes, but maybe to compare notes or listen for insights that can comfort or reassure. In the next episode, The Fragile Family Man, I'm a little shaky, but I'm alive. It's not all smooth sailing from here. Join me for the next installment. My body was trying to kill me, and I was trying to make it stop. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider writing a review or sharing with a friend. This is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Thanks go to producer and audio engineer Sean Rule Hoffman, production director Bridget Coyne, and executive producer Gerardo Orlando. Learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. <laughs>